just before we get into, well, actually, you know what? Uh, let, me, let me get to where we need to be, and then I want to share some, some things. I think we're on, like, Roman numeral three, how grace was displayed during a period of the law, because we've, uh, you know, we're moving through here. But uh, a couple of things came up last week, or last time. And just for the sake of argument, you know, some of the people that raise the questions are not here. But one of the questions was on the issue of the term Christian. And uh, I thought Louis Lapidus, who started Beth Ariel some 30 years ago, he had written this book, pamphlet called Jesus or Yeshua, Does It Matter? And he goes through all kinds of things regarding these tensions, you know. So um, under a section called Believer, he says, rather than the well-worn term Christian, the word believer communicates a more positive message. To the Jewish mind, Christians are people who have hated and oppressed Jews for centuries. That's to the, to the Jewish mind. Though Christian is a great word to describe what New Testament believers stand for, it has become specifically and exclusively employed as a reference to Gentile believers. In contrast, 1 Peter 4.16 in the New Testament employs the phrase to designate both Jewish and Gentile followers of Israel's Messiah. And the text says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Christian comes from the Greek Christianos, which means those who belong to the Messiah. The word Christian is used only three times in the New Covenant. Acts 11.26, Acts 26.28, and 1 Peter 4.16. It is sometimes a detriment to a clear presentation of the gospel that one term used only three times in the scriptures now categorizes all followers of the Messiah. That's a good line. You know, today we always use the word Christian. It's only used three times in the Bible. So he's saying it is sometimes a detriment to a clear presentation of the gospel that one term used only three times in the scriptures now categorizes all followers of the Messiah. Furthermore, the name Christian has become synonymous with Gentile cultural expressions. So the Jewish person assumes that to become a Christian he or she is trading in a corned beef sandwich on rye for a ham sandwich on white smothered in mayo. <laughs> Other terms also used in the New Covenant to describe followers of Yeshua are believers. Acts 10.45, 1 Thessalonians 1.7, 1 Timothy 6.2. Uh, followers of Messiah called disciples. Matthew 5.1, The term believer focuses on a person's commitment or trust to follow the Lord and not on one's ethnicity. That's a good point because the term Christian in many Jewish people's minds right. focuses on ethnicity, not being Jewish. Yeah, right. But the term believer focuses on a person's commitment that I've chosen to believe this way. And so it doesn't have the same derogatory feel. That makes sense. Despite the tendency of Christians to employ believer to describe themselves, the words disciple or disciples are used a total of 240 times in the Gospels in the book of Acts. In Acts 2.14 and, and, and Acts 19.23, adherent, adherents to the Messianic faith are called followers of the way. Wow. 
with regard to the term olam, which is translated forever, ever, everlasting, evermore, perpetual, old, ancient, world. So, uh, similar in general, but, but sometimes it substitutes for always, for in the world, and eternity. Uh, now he goes on to say, this word is probably derived from alam, meaning to hide, thus pointing to what is hidden in the distant future and the distant past. Okay, now these guys that wrote this are three of the most well-respected evangelical Old Testament scholars. Here's what they say. Though olam is used more than 300 times to indicate indefinite continuance into the very distant future, the meaning of the word is not confined to the future. There are at least 20 instances where it clearly refers to the past. Such usages generally point to something that seems long ago, but rarely, if ever, refer to a limitless past. So in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, Job 22, verse 15, 32, 7, Job 22, 15, it may refer to the time of one's elders. So it means it's limited. In Proverbs 22.28, 23.10, Jeremiah 6.16, also 18.15, also 28.8, it points back somewhat farther. In Isaiah 58.12, 61.4, uh-huh. Correct. And then Micah 7.14, Malachi 3.4, and in the Aramaic of Ezra 4.15 and 19, it clearly refers to the time just before the exile. In 1 Samuel 27.8, Isaiah 51.9, and 63, 9, and 11, and perhaps Ezekiel 36, 2, it refers to the events of the Exodus from Egypt. See, people want Olam to mean forever, but it's not always used that way, is the point he's making. Sometimes it's used for a long time ago, just as it could be used for a long time to come, not indefiniteness. That's his point. And he's showing you places where it's used that way. Now, here's a, another point. In Genesis 6-4, it points to the time shortly before the flood. So now here's his point. None of these past references has in it the idea of endlessness or limitlessness, but each points to a time long before the immediate knowledge of those living. So the idea is just it's a long time ago. It, and it ought not to be pressed to mean something more, which is what people try to do when they want to argue that the Mosaic Law, being for Olam, never has a, a termination point. It only means it will last for a long time. And now you asked me how long a time, and my answer was for as long as it is 
in operation. When it's when it ceases, when it ceases. Now the reason I use that word is because Paul uses that word in the New Testament. And we're going to look at it, not tonight, but we'll look at it where he says that a Messiah has rendered the law inoperative. So the point is the law was a school teacher, a custodian, to lead us to Messiah. It's done its work when it has done that, or it condemns because it reveals sin. We're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So now that it no longer is the code by which we ought to live, it has come to its conclusion. You want to call it to its goal, to its conclusion, even you could say to its end, because we're going to look at this. The Greek word telos can mean that. But because it was established 1,500 years before the time of Messiah, and it lasted for 1,500 years, the term olam can be used because it's a long time. It doesn't have to mean without end. That's what he's. That's what he's showing. So now, um, so then he goes on to say, uh, you don't have to put this down. But in Isaiah sixty-four three, the King James translates the word "beginning of the world." In Psalm seventy-three, Ecclesiastes three, it is translated "world," suggesting the beginning of a usage that developed greatly in post-biblical times. So now, now another scholar they're quoting holds that its basic meaning, talking about olam, its basic meaning is most distant times. It can refer to either remote past or to the future or to both as due to the fact that it does not occur independently as a subject or an object. In other words, the word never says, oh, forever. There's always something that is being forever. So it's only used in connection with prepositions indicating direction. So it's either... It's either it's either indicating, it's only used with prepositions indicating direction. So it's either direction pointing to the past or direction pointing to the future. So some of those uh, prepositions are, for example, the word min, which can be translated from or since. Another one is odd, which can mean until. Another one is le, which can mean two or four, you know. So, uh, or as an adverbial accusative of direction, or finally as the modifying genitive in the construct relationship. Now, you see, now we're talking about grammar. See, now the reason I read that is because I want you to see this is not simple. You know, there's a lot of complication here. So, here's the thing in the latter instance, olam can express by itself the whole range of meanings denoted by all the prepositions. It can just be simply translated since, until, to the most distant time. It assumes the meaning unlimited, incalculable, but uh, continuance or, eter- or eternity. So he says we might therefore best state the best meaning as a kind of range between remotest time in the past or to the future. But as shown above, it is sometimes used of a not-so-remote past. For the meaning of the word and its attributive use, we should use the designation of the Lord as El Olam, the eternal God. Interesting, he says, the Septuagint translates Olam by, I, uh, I, 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 how do you pronounce this? Uh, Aeon. Aeon. And so, right, so, which has essentially the same range of meaning. 
that neither the Hebrew nor Greek word in itself contains the idea of endlessness is shown by the fact is shown both by the fact that they sometimes refer to events or conditions that occurred at a definite point in the past and also by the fact that sometimes it is thought desirable to repeat the word, not merely saying forever, but forever and ever. So both words came to be used to refer to a long age or period, an idea that is expressed that is sometimes expressed in English by the word world. So anyway, just to show you when I was saying that, that that's where, um, that's what our scholarship is telling us. And we ought not to push its meaning. Now, one last thing, and that is in Michael Rydelnik's book, Professor Drew Studies over at Moody, very dear friend of mine, excellent writer, by the way. He's a yeah, he's a great speaker. He's a good writer. Um, now, he has an interesting thing on the promise of the land given to the Jewish people as an eternal inheritance. Right. So he says, both Genesis 3, 13, 15 and Second Chronicles 27 state that God gave the land to Israel as an inheritance, olam, forever. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it is possible that the Hebrew word used in these passages, olam, and translated forever, does not necessarily mean for all eternity. For example, it is used in Exodus 21.6 of a slave who willingly accepts service to his master. It doesn't matter how the spelling is, it's still the same word. When, when, When his ear is pierced, he shall serve him, olam. Clearly, Moses did not mean for all eternity, but rather for the rest of his life, or perhaps only until the year of Jubilee. Therefore, since olam is the word used to describe the land grant, it can possibly mean that God gave the land to Israel for a long time, but not forever. But let's extend our word study of olam. One Hebrew phrase used to describe that which is eternal is min olam va'ad olam. Now, we just talked about the two direction words, min, from, or since, odd, until. It is commonly translated forever and ever, or from everlasting to everlasting. As a general rule, the phrase is used of matters pertaining to God alone. For example, it is used to describe the eternal blessedness of God. Talking about when, when it says min olam, literally it can be translated from ever, or from a long time, or since a long time. What Michael is pointing out is that there's also the expression min olam ve'ad olam, one expression, Mm -hmm. from remote past Mm -hmm. and until the remote future. That's, Mm -hmm. That's what we could say. But it more often than not into English is translated forever and ever. What Eitan is saying is you can use the word world, which we saw in this uh, um, workbook, word book that I got out, that they said oftentimes the word world is used because that's an English expression, and we're putting this into English. So, but the phrase we're looking at now is not just olam or va'ad olam or min olam, but the two together, min olam ve'ad olam. Okay. So now, he, hold on. He wants to comment on that. And so his comment on that is um, that that phrase is used most often for matters pertaining to God alone. 
So he's going to say this is the strongest expression for length of time that you can have in the Hebrew. They don't have a word like eternity. They don't have a word for without beginning and end. You know, they have this word olam, which only means distant time. But when in the Hebrew writers want to say from olam until olam, that's sort of the strongest way in ancient Hebrew that you can speak about the lengthiest length of time one can possibly convey. So they're saying that that phrase, when that is used, is more often than not used to describe God. So it's a unique phrase that's used of God because God is without beginning and without end. So he, he says, for example, First Chronicles 16.36, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, is how that could be translated, but it's the phrase, min olam The phrase declares the loving kindness of God to be eternal, Psalm 103.17, and God's existence to be eternal, Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, right? That's Moses. Daniel uses the equivalent phrase in Aramaic to describe God's kingdom as existing for all ages to come, chapter 7, verse 18. So he concludes, min olam va'ad olam is the strongest expression in Hebrew to describe perpetuity and eternality. And for the most part, it refers to God and his eternal nature. Now, there are only two exceptions to the use of this phrase. That it does not refer to God. And the, the two are Jeremiah 7.7 7 and Jeremiah 25.5. And both of, those phrase, both of those passages use the phrase with regard to the promise of the land. So he says, in both cases, it refers to the nation of Israel's eternal possession of the land of Israel. Jeremiah 7, 7, God promises Israel, I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers, min olam va'ad olam. The prophet also uses the same phrase, Jeremiah 25.5, telling Israel that they will dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your fathers, min olam va'ad olam. Biblical Hebrew usage simply has no stronger way to indicate eternity. Thus, Jeremiah's words could not be any clearer. God has given the land of Israel to the people of Israel as a perpetual and eternal inheritance. Okay, well, I just, you know, I, I just want you to know that when these questions come up, you know, I do take them seriously. And try, you know, and for the sake of clarity. So if people tell you, hey, it says forever we're to do, obey the Sabbath, remember, the word doesn't mean that. It means for an extended, lengthy period of time, but within the context of the operating of that covenant. When the covenant comes to a conclusion, then the, um, the commandments associated with it also come to a conclusion. Now, that doesn't mean we still can't learn from the law. I don't mean to suggest, oh, we could throw this out because it's not relevant. It is relevant. It's still for teaching and correction and righteousness that we could be thoroughly furnished for every good work. I mean, um, and much of the law, remember what I said before, is that sometimes when God initiates covenants, he brings something into this covenant, you know, something new, something carried over that was there. Some things from the law are carried over into the new covenant. Nine of the Ten Commandments are restated. And certainly the spirit and intention and the intent, 
intention of the law is carried over. Okay. But we, we, we want to talk now. We've talked a little bit about the law, you know, and I, I think we're getting a handle on it. We're now thinking about how grace was displayed during the period of the law. And so one way that it was displayed was in God's electing of Israel. And th- these are some passages that uh, you could check out. We don't have to look at them for the interest of time. Um, but election, the, the doctrine of election is that God, in and of himself, chooses a people for himself. So when we, when we ask the question, why would God choose Israel? The answer is because he chose Israel. <laughs> you know? In other words, there, there's nothing among the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that made us more desirable to God than anyone else. And that's what he says in Deuteronomy 7 7. I have set my love upon you. That's what election is. I've set my love upon you, not because you are the greatest of all peoples, you were the fewest of all, you know. But, but, <laughs> right. but, that's right. But simply, he says in Deuteronomy 7, but simply because I loved you. Now, some people may be offended by that, electing Israel, but that's the same thing Paul teaches about believers in the new covenant. God has set his love upon you as an individual, and he's loved you, and he's chosen you unto himself. Not because of anything you have done, but simply because he's chosen to love you. Now, I know that there are, there are um, tensions when I say that, but part of biblical honesty is recognizing that not all tensions are resolved. The tensions exist, you know? So the scriptures do talk about the need to receive the Lord. For as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the children of God. I know that's there, you know? We talk about accepting him, placing our faith in him, trusting him. Those are things we are to do. So I don't want to suggest that election somehow um, uh, circumvents those, pa- those passages that talk about our responsibility. So I remember in seminary, Dr. Ryrie said, sanctification, the process by which God makes us more like his son, is 100% the work of God by the Spirit of God and 100% the work of us. Now, I said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so there's 200% working on that. You know? But the point is that both are spoken of, and at this side of heaven, very difficult to resolve. Now, to the degree to which you emphasize something puts you into one camp or the other, and, it, and you know, dominoes start hitting, and you, you kind of decide which dominoes do you like being hit, which ones don't you, and so you sort of focus attention or you put emphasis. But our job is to teach the full counsel of God. And the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. Not merely God chooses on the basis of what he sees in us. That's not the doctrine of election. God chooses on the basis of his own free will by his own free will. Without any, um, without any reflection on who we are or what we bring to the table. Because we bring nothing to the table. You know, we bring nothing. So, um, what we become as quote-unquote good people, 
is what God enables us to become by the work of his spirit. There is none righteous. No, not one. <laughs> you know? And Paul says this Roman, in Romans 2, you know, we've all run away, we've all done this, we've all done that, and yet still God has chosen us and he's put his spirit in us and he's made us new. Yeah, and the big... I remember Arnold and I talking about this because I tend to be more on the reform side of things than he is. And I remember we were, we were discussing this in, in front of a group. And uh, so I said, for me, regeneration precedes faith. In other words, regeneration is God making me new. Once he makes me new, now I can believe. Arnold's response was, well, if that's true, that means you're saved before you believe. And, I, and, I, and he, and he said, he, his response was, I believe faith precedes regeneration. That when we believe in him, he then makes us alive. And I said, well, then your problem is, how does a person dead in trespasses and sins believe? How does a dead man do anything? Because the imagery in, in Ephesians is not a person who is swooning, dying, or weak. He's a person who is entombed like Lazarus. And unless God says, come forth, he can't come forth. Unless God says, trust, believe, or whatever, he can't. So that's the tension. Neither one of us want to exclude either one, right? We both said regeneration and faith are part of this whole dynamic that's related to election. It's what you emphasize when and where. With some people, you need to emphasize, you need to make a choice. Election, by the way, when we talk about election, election doesn't save anyone. The Bible never says we are saved by election. We are saved by grace through faith. Election is a mystery in the counsels of God, in the mind of God, as he surveys his plans and purposes. He's letting us in on something, but we cannot draw conclusions that the Bible doesn't tell for us. So in one of, you know, um, in, uh, some of you would be familiar, but in Calvin's uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is, you know, the seminal body of stuff for reform thinking, um, his section on predestination, and he's sort of like the uh, expositor of predestination, at least he's been given that, that reputation, in that section, he starts it off. People don't realize this sometimes, but he starts it off by saying that there are two dangers when approaching this subject. One is saying more than what Scripture says. So when we, we talk about if predestination is true and election is true and all this stuff God is doing is true, we then conclude, oh, then people are predestined to hell. Or then we conclude, oh, God doesn't love the world. Calvin is saying you can't push that to that degree because now you're saying more than what Scripture says because Scripture never talks about predestining to hell or not loving the world. So you can't make something say something that it's not saying. So Hold on. So when, so when he... Uh, speaks about God's activity in doing something positive, you cannot then also say, well, then he's also doing something negative because it never used that way. So he says you have to be careful not to say more.
than what Scripture says. As much as we may feel that's the logical conclusion, you can't push that there unless the Scripture reveals. The second danger, he says, is we don't say enough. So we start redefining what these words mean so that they're not as strong and significant and powerful and impressive as they're meant to be. These terms are meant to denote the majesty of God, the grace of God, and the goodness in God that he would do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And, you know, we can't resolve it all, and we shouldn't resolve it all, and we shouldn't have argumentation of real intensity about, about it either. Uh, but we should enjoy what God's word is revealing to us and affirm what God has to say and try to put it in perspective as much as we can, realizing we all see through glass darkly. And what Moses says, the secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things that he has revealed belongs unto us and to our children. And he just hasn't revealed enough about all of these other components. But I just take a moment, you know, I don't mean this to be a whole discussion on election, but I, because I use the term, and we oftentimes think of it in terms of the individuals who are saved, it is used of the Jewish people. So that when we read of Israel as the chosen people, another word for that is the elect people. And that's all I really wanted to say. Okay, um, but no, nevertheless, God's grace was displayed during the period of the law in that God chose Israel. And uh, secondly, uh, with regard to God's ongoing restoration of his people, when, when Israel would sin, he could reject them. When they would sin, he could say, uh, you're no longer going to be my people because of your sinfulness. But what he chooses to do instead is to restore them. And that's an act of his grace. He continues to work with them. He never rejects them. And that's uh, an act of his grace. The new covenant, <coughs> excuse me, the new covenant was promised to the Jewish people and Gentiles that would embrace Messiah. And it was promised during the period of the law. I mean, Jeremiah where 31, where he makes the promise of the, uh, whoops, of the new covenant, that I will now make a new covenant with you, not like the one that you broke that I gave you in the wilderness, uh, but I'll write the law in your hearts. That's being told to them during the period of the law. So they are already uh, being f informed that there's a new covenant arrangement that's going to be enacted that will be better than what is presently here. Now, the writer to the Hebrews will expand greatly on that better idea, superior idea, but it's already being implied and intimated by uh, under the period of the law. So there's grace displayed during the period of the law. So, again, I said earlier when it says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Yeshua the Messiah. We ought not to see a harsh contrast. Certainly a contrast, a change, a difference. But it's not black and white. You know? it's, there is a commingling of grace in law, and there is law in grace. As Paul says, it's not as if uh, I became as a Gentile without law, as if I had no law. You know, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, I still have a law, you know, that I have to live in connection with. But he's not bound by the precepts of the Mosaic law in and of themselves.
And the Holy Spirit's power was experienced during the period of, of the law. So while with the new covenant, he says he would write the law in our hearts, which would be written by the power of the Spirit of God, and we live now uh, under the law of the Spirit, we are ones that are to walk in the power of the Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit's power was experienced during the period of the law, not to the degree to which we are experiencing him today. Uh, Paul, uh, Messiah himself said when he was celebrated Passover and uh, in John chapter, what was it, 16 or 17 or so, where he said the Holy Spirit uh, is um, with you and will be in you. Now, when he says will be in you, he's telling us there's going to be a new relationship of the Holy Spirit to his followers, both Jew and Gentile, but to his followers. That no longer will the Spirit of God simply be with them, but would actually be in them. The scripture doesn't give us a clear definition of what the in means, but it certainly denotes a greater intimacy and a greater uh, connection. And also, while the Holy Spirit was experienced, his power was experienced in the Old Testament or during the time of the law, in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, it was, he was limited. Not every individual Israelite experienced the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but those upon whom the Spirit of God fell or, or uh, descended. And it was also temporary. The Holy Spirit did not fill them like he fills us permanently as uh, followers of Messiah. So, uh, now, the, I, I don't want to confuse something. The Scripture does speak about being filled with the Spirit, and he says be continually filled, which means that there can be times when we're not filled with the Spirit. But there's never a time we're not indwelt by the Spirit. That is a permanent um, blessing that we have received. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells us. Whereas during the time of the law, the Spirit came upon individuals, and it was temporary, that coming upon them was a temporary experience. But in the Brit HaDashah, when the Spirit of God indwells us, it's permanent and it's internal in some manner. So, uh, And these are some passages that reveal the manifestation of the Spirit's power. And so, you know, for those that are non-charismatic, I think we, we lose out here, you know. Um, I mean, I really struggle with this as one who I consider myself non-charismatic. You know, I'm not a Pentecostal or anything. But I, I'm always intrigued by the focus of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts, in Paul's writings, uh, in the life of Messiah, that all he did was, all that Messiah accomplished was through the empowerment of the Spirit of God. And so I don't think we have to go full force to become charismatic or Pentecostal, but I think we have to be careful not to marginalize his work and his presence and his availability and his empowerment um, because we may think that there are extremes in other sort of theological contexts. And that's what happens. You know, we see an extreme here. We don't like all, some of the things we see. And what do we do? We then sort of squelch quench the Spirit's power uh, in our own life, but maybe, I don't know, more importantly, but also, and what I'm thinking about, is within the context of our congregation. 
You know, we need the Spirit of God to be alive and active. Um, I tend to be cerebral in nature. I like to think about things. I like to figure this stuff out. I like to v- define things well. And some, sometimes I have to remember that sort of inclination of being focused on trying to understand things works against me in simply um, submitting myself to the work of the Spirit of God and allowing me to have him reveal things to me that perhaps I could not otherwise understand, you know, in my own strength. That's a balance that we all have to come to because Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to be living sacrifices and by the renewing of our mind, you know. So thinking is a good thing. And we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm not suggesting we should throw that out. But when that becomes focused or dominant, the tendency, at least for me, I speak for myself, the tendency is I minimize prayer. I minimize crying out to God to make the difference. I minimize sort of trusting in him rather than in my own ingenuity, thoughtfulness, you know, and things of that sort. And, um, you know, I have, to f- I have to just wrestle with that. Remember, when we read the English Bible, we're reading, you know, sometimes this gets lost. All translations are interpretations as well. Because when a translator chooses a word, he's telling you what he understands. So sometimes they just use it for variety. You know, you don't want to always say, and forever, and forever, and forever. So now they say, and forever, and forever lasting, and for perpetuity. You know? I mean, it's just to give variety. Um, you see this in the Hebrew, you know, like the story of Rebecca. When um, Eliezer goes, it's all these vavs, right? And she does this, and she does that, and she does that, and she does that. And she waters the camels, and she goes over here, and she goes over there. And she's, you know, and from a literary point of view, we'd say, this is like so repetitious. But the point of the repetition is to show Rebecca just kept doing this stuff. And so in keeping to doing it, she was fulfilling the sign that Eliezer asked for. You know? So there's a purpose in the repetition. But when you put it into English, it doesn't read well. So then you read phrases like, and then she did this, and after that she did that. But it doesn't really say that. It's... You know, but I wouldn't worry about thinking, oh, we're not getting the truth here. We're getting the truth, but the truth as understood by a given translator. But if we didn't, but you know, all of that's few and far between. When you think of the serious doctrines in Scripture, you know, the deity of Messiah, the triunity of God, salvation by grace, that's all clear. Okay, well, we don't have to go down that road. But anyway, we're talking about the Spirit's power. Also, during the period of the Mosaic Law, the Lord revealed himself as uh, Adonai, or the sacred name of God. Well, it's a different word, but, you know, what do you want to say? Jehovah, Yahweh, Yehyeh. Those are three Hebrew letters, but four. The Yod, He, Vav, He. You can't really pronounce that. There's different scholars have suggested different ways that it might be pronounced. We're not sure. And, um, and there's different translations for it. But it certainly comes from the verb to be, hayah. So we know it has something to do with being. 
And, you know, some say I will be what I will be. I am who I am. I have been what I will always be. I mean, there's just, there's a variety. There's like 40 or 50 different potential people suggested things. Some are just more um, translations of the meaning of the name that are uh, more readily uh, understandable, but not necessarily a good translation. Now, now, hold on. Now, I use the word Adonai because in the synagogue, when you come to the sacred name of God and you're reading it, because it's the unpronounceable, quote-unquote, name of God, you don't say it. Now, part of it comes out of it's superstitious in some regard. The Mosaic law says don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so if we just, that's not what it means. But because of that, the rabbi said when we come to the sacred name of God, we don't pronounce it. In place of pronouncing that word, which we're not sure how to pronounce, we can substitute other words. I substituted the word Adonai, meaning Lord. Some people substitute Hashem, meaning the name. And maybe that's a little closer to the point because it's the name that we're not pronouncing. Now, let me just back up. The word Jehovah is a weird word altogether because what essentially, um, I don't know if Jehovah's Witnesses did this or whenever the word was evolved, they took the consonants of the word, the sacred name of God. They took the vowels from Adonai and they put them together. And by taking the vowels from one word and putting it onto another word, they came up with, and we can look at this sometime and I'll show you, they came up with Jehovah as the meaning, as the, the pronunciation. But 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 that's but but hold on but that's but that's totally foreign. The reason for that is because the yod comes into English as an H, as a J, and as a Y. It can come in any of them. Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, we use a J. When we use Isaiah, we use an an I. When we have Hosea, we use an H. So the these letters can come into other languages differently given certain vowel patterns because of the way the English pronounces things. It's a different word. Okay, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, um, although you know, I hope this is helpful. But the point is that God's grace was revealed during the Mosaic Law in that he revealed his sacred name, his full name. His full character, you might say, to the best of one's uh, of our ability to perceive it. You know, we can only, uh, you know, he's condescending to us. So what he makes known of himself is only a small scratch, you know, about who he is. Right. Okay. Uh, also, during the the Mosaic Law, we had the Davidic covenant, where it promised the king. That's during the Mosaic Law. So the grace of God is seen here. The word chesed, meaning loving kindness, steadfast love of God, uh, is found in the Mosaic Law, used with regard to these three covenants. 
And so the loving kindness, the grace of God, the grace of God is seen in the Mosaic Law in that the very word chesed, which denotes the grace of God, is linked with these three most important uh, covenants, the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. And these are passages where chesed is used with it. Um, oh, and by the way, the Mosaic Covenant is spoken of in this way too. But it's just to see that God's grace. The Mosaic Covenant is a display of His grace. I, I'm, I'm not suggesting otherwise. 